from the spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg with you. And after having the gang all here a week ago as we celebrated our 10th anniversary, I'm flying solo once again. It's becoming an epidemic around here. When people tune into Spooky South Coast, they don't want to hear me again and again and again on my own. They like to hear the Spooky crew, but they are all pulled to various ends of the earth tonight. So I'll be here by myself, manning the microphone, manning Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com and also SpookyTV.com. Hello to everybody watching on Spooky TV. And uh, also, of course, uh, taking your calls throughout the course of the program at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. But, of course, we have a various, a myriad of ways that you can reach out and connect with us to talk about the world of the paranormal. That includes email, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can also text us using 67664, if you just text that number and put WBSM at the beginning of your text message, 67664, and start your message with WBSM, we can see your texts right here in the studio, and we can either reply to them with a text going back to you or reply to you on air. And, of course, Twitter as well. We're at SpookySC, but you can talk about the show at any time using the hashtag SpookyLive. So that should cover it for all the different ways you can get a hold of us. And, of course, SpookySouthCoast.com has all that information right up there on the main page if you need to go back and refer to that. Normally on Spooky TV, when we have somebody else here running it, we throw the numbers up on the screen. We have all the different information and all that, but it's a little bit harder uh, when I'm on my own. So for tonight, you just get the nice shot of me occasionally staring at you a little bit weirdly. And that may happen. But I've got, you know, I've got the laptop running Spooky TV. I've got my phone that I'm using for communication and checking for Twitter on that. I've got the computer over here, the station computer, that's probably going to be running a bunch of different things. So you never know, you know, what's pulling, what, what's going to pull me in what direction at any given time. So it's worth checking out on Spooky TV to watch as I get flustered trying to handle it all. And a little bit later on, we'll be joined by our guest tonight, Matt Wingett. He is going to be calling in, Skyping in from the U.K., because he's going to be talking to us about something that is, we, we've touched upon this a little bit here and there during the course of the last 10 years uh, with Spooky South Coast, when we've talked about the spiritualist movement, when we've talked about the, the era of paranormal research that existed in the late 1800s and early 1900s. You know, we've always talked about that spiritualist movement as being a controversial time because you had the true believers and those who felt like they were being scammed by the spiritualists. And it's not a lot unlike today, where you have the people who are the diehard true believers today, and you have the others who are on the fence, and then you have the segment that thinks that it's all a bunch of hooey and that the people who believe in it are just a bunch of fools. And that was kind of the same atmosphere that was happening during the time of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who you might know for the Sherlock Holmes novels, as well as some other writings, uh, one of the most prolific British writers of all time, one of the most enduring characters in all of literature, and what was Sherlock Holmes known for but his great logic? So a lot of people at the time wondered, how could Sir Arthur Conan Doyle create a character who is so sound of mind and so based in logic, but yet the guy who created him 
has a foot in the paranormal world and is interested in ghosts and, and the spiritualist movement and all of that. So Matt Wingett will be our guest tonight. He has a book out called Conan Doyle and the Mysterious World of Light, and we will let him explain exactly what that is uh, a little bit later on. But uh, it's, it's a fascinating book. I've had a chance to kind of just thumb through it a little bit today, uh, and I look forward to digging into it full bore. But it's when you have the opportunity to learn about somebody's beliefs through their own words, it makes all the difference in the world. And so Matt Wingett's going to join us a little bit later on from the U.K. to talk about all that. We'll also be bringing in as our guest uh, the esteemed colleague, the esteemed content director for SpookySouthCoast.com, Christopher Balzano. He'll join us a little bit later on for the interview as well. And listen, folks. There's there's somebody in the building tonight. Those of you who listened to Saturday Morning with Tim Weisberg, a, you remember Greg DeRosiers, who was my news guy for, for a couple of years and uh, and is now on assignment on the weekends. But uh, he's in the building. So I've told him that when he's done writing a story, he has an open invitation to come on and, and sit in and be part of the spooky crew for tonight. So he might just join us. So a little bit of a, a change up here. To the, to the way we normally do things. But that's all right, because I love being able to bring people into the fold that you know might not be as well-versed in the paranormal and to, to have them uh, maybe have their eyes opened a little bit more. And, of course, again, your calls throughout the course of the show, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420, and text us at 67664. Just start your message with WBSM. And, and I can tell you this. Uh, Spooky South Coast has been the most uh, prolific number of texts during the course of the week. This show gets more texts than any other show, and we appreciate that. Thank you to all the well-wishers last Saturday night who were texting us to congratulate us on 10 years, and, uh, and certainly we look forward to many, many more. But that's a celebration of things. I do want to start, uh, start off tonight with a little bit of a in, in memoriam for somebody, and that would be Dr. Edgar Mitchell. He was the sixth man to walk on the moon as part of the Apollo 14 mission, and he was somebody who had a UFO experience while he was out in space. And he was not shy about talking about that experience when he came back to Earth. And especially in, in later years, uh, the last couple of years, he's really been prominent, and he's been out there. And we, you know, we tried getting him on the show uh, there was a lot of uh, back and forth about the right time to get him on, and uh, I, I don't think that we were ever able to actually pull it together, uh, and, and I'm very sorry about that. But, I, you know, I've read his book, and uh, we I've heard him on other shows, and he was, in my eyes, you know, a very brave person for coming out and sharing his experiences. But he always brought up a great point uh, that, he, you know, if mankind just had a chance to take a look at the Earth from the perspective of being on the moon, we would realize that all of our problems that we, we cause here on this planet for ourselves are insignificant. And that looking at the world as a greater whole picture would make us more interconnected. And I think that's a really important message because for somebody to have been out there and not only have had that perspective, but also to have, at least in his experiences and in his mind, proof to himself that there are other intelligences out there beyond our own, you come back with a very different mindset. The problem is, no matter how much he talked about that mindset, no matter how much he preached to us, not, not preached, but no matter how much he you know, spread that gospel to us that we should, we should feel that way, a lot of people just derided him. 
a man who was an Apollo astronaut was scoffed at for the stories that he shared. But I think in the end, you know, at some point in time, when it's proven correct that there are other beings of intelligence out there besides us, when that actually happens, I think you're going to see him hailed as a hero. Uh, more so than just for being one of the brave Apollo astronauts, but for being somebody who will go down as one of the forefront, one of the vanguard, the original people telling us that uh, our entire worldview would soon change uh, once we have interaction with those beings. So absolutely 100% uh, rest in peace, Edgar Mitchell. Uh, We certainly do miss you already. And we are going to, uh, when we... I think the next time that we talk about UFOs here on the show, uh, I'll see if we can get together a little bit of an audio tribute to Dr. Mitchell. Uh, I know that there's a lot of uh, footage, a lot of interview audio out there that maybe we can put together some of his um, stories that he shared with some of our friends that have other paranormal shows that would be willing to pass that on to us. And just real quickly, I know we got a lot of criticism when we were asking for suggestions about what you want to see in the next 10 years of Spooky South Coast. Uh, one of the criticisms we heard is less pushing of events but those events are what help us keep this show going because we pay for the show out of our own pocket all this technology that you see with spooky tv and all the stuff that we bring in we we bring that in so in order to maintain the podcasting and the website and all that stuff you know we we have some of these events to help offset that we take donations all year round and all that uh but the the uh, event that we have coming up next fr- this coming Friday night will be at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. We're calling it Lizzie's Bloody Valentine 2016, and it is a spooky South Coast event. It's not a Legend Trips event. So Jeff Belanger won't be there, but uh, the spooky crew will be there. You know, Matt Moniz, Stephanie Burke, myself, Andrew Lake. I'm not sure if Matt Costa is going to make it, but uh, we'll, we'll be there at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. We're going to give you dinner. We're going to give you you know, presentation. We're going to give you the historical tour, and we're going to give you hours of guided investigation as part of the night. And it'll be just like a Legend Trips event. The only difference is you know, Jeff's not going to be there, and, uh, and we won't have a lot of the same technology uh, that we might have when he's there. We're going to have some plenty of stuff for you to play with and utilize on the investigation, but it's just it's different than a Legend Trips event. It's always a little bit more... It's more casual and laid back when it's a spooky South Coast event, I think. And not that there's anything wrong with the way we run Legend Trips events. It's just we take a different approach and a different atmosphere to it. So there are uh, still some tickets left. We're about halfway sold out. If you would like to get involved, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com. You can get the tickets there. And uh, you can always find me on on Facebook and and Twitter as well, at Tim Weisberg. And I can help you with what you need to be able to get those tickets. And we still have some rooms available as well. So not only can you get the ticket, the ticket's $135 to come on the paranormal night with the dinner and the presentations and the tour and the investigation. But for an extra $100 a person, you can stay in one of the rooms. So that's a pretty good deal. I mean, those rooms go for like $300 a piece on their own. So you're already getting a huge discount on that. And that means that when we all go home at like 1 or 2 in the morning, you can stay up all night and keep investigating if you want. Just don't bother anybody else that's trying to sleep in their room, but, you know, there you go. And I got the news today. There's been a lot of stuff going on about the Ghost Ark because they finally started shipping this item out last week. They sent out the shipping emails to the first 200 people that had pre-ordered, and there was a lot of controversy about whether or not the tracking numbers were actually working. 
or whether or not they were actually being shipped. But over the last couple of days, people have started receiving their ghost arts. Now, there's some concern about the way, you know, the quality testing of the ghost arcs and all that, but, uh, you know, some of that has to do with the manufacturing company. Ghost Arc is trying to find out what happened with the manufacturers in China and how they quality control tested before they shipped them out. But that aside, they're starting to fill the, the pre-orders. And I received an email from Massimo Rossi, the creator of Ghost Arc today, saying that they are going to be shipping my Ghost Arc out via courier this coming Monday. Now, I don't know if that's coming from where they're based in Italy or if that's coming from China. I don't know how long that's going to take to arrive. I don't know how long courier service works. But I did send a follow-up email. I'm waiting to hear back. If that means there's a possibility that ghost dark could be in my hands by Friday night, by the time we have this event at Lizzie Borden's house. So you could be among the first people to ever investigate with a ghost dark provided I get it in time. And a good friend of the show, Frank Race, who takes all of our Legend Trips photographs and uh, is just, you know, he's the, the eyes of Legend Trips for sure, he also ordered a ghost arc, and his is also due to arrive this week. And he's volunteered to let us borrow his ghost arc, should mine not arrive in time. So there's a very good chance that we will have a ghost arc at the Lizzie Borden event this coming Friday night. Your chance to check it out before you decide to order one for yourself and to see if it's something that you'd be interested in owning. The supposedly paranormal all-in-one tool, which, if it works the way it's supposed to work, it'll be fantastic. Maybe there's some bugs to be worked out. We'll find out for sure, and you can certainly find out along with us. So why don't we take a break? During that break, I'm going to try and get our guest, Matt Wingett, on the phone or on the Skype, and I'll bring in Chris Balzano as well, and we will certainly delve into the world of the strange and unusual surrounding Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Maybe you want to go out and grab your, your beat-up copy of The Hound of the Baskervilles and just hold on to it and, and keep it ready because we're going to talk about all those strange and unusual tales coming up in just a few minutes when we return. And again, during the course of the discussion, if you want to call in with any questions for our guest, you can do so at 508 996 and you can also text them to us, 67664. Just always be sure to start your text with WBSM because otherwise it doesn't filter into our software correctly. So you need to definitely make sure that you put that in there so that we can see it uh, here in the studio. All right, we are going to take a break. We'll come back on the other side with our guest and the discussion about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in just a few moments here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg with you, and uh, we are going to be joined here via Skype with our guest and our guest co-host for tonight. Of course, let me introduce first uh, Spooky South Coast content director Chris Balzano. Good evening, Chris. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing spooktacular. I'm always doing well when the technology seems to be on our side. I know. This really sounds beautiful tonight. And, and that's what I love about Skype is that, you know, we've got somebody down in Florida, we've got somebody in the UK, and we've got me here in the spooky studio, and we're all going to sound like we're hanging out in the same room, <laughs> which is, you know, that's always a, a fantastic, uh, you know, experience for us anyways when we actually get to be in the same room. So this is like the next best thing. Exactly. 
Stop pretending. Actually, we all know that we really are in the same room. <laughs> That'd be pretty. We'd have a huge budget to be able to pull that <laughs> off if that was the case. And uh, and I think one of the great things about tonight's discussion is uh, is we can have a very organic discussion where we can kind of go beyond uh, just the the general subject matter. And and I always love when we can get everybody together. And it sounds like you know because if we were all on the phone with each other and it sounds like you're on the phone, I think it's kind of restrictive to the conversation a little bit. So this is going to be a lot more. Like we're having a you know a regular face to face conversation, even though I didn't make you guys actually turn on cameras. Thank goodness. For that. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, you don't want to see me at three o'clock in the morning. I tell you, that's what it is over here. <laughs> well, and, that's- and actually, the sound quality is so good that I might take up our suggestion we were talking about off air and actually uh, do some songs from Seven Brides from Seven Bro- for, uh, for Seven <laughs> Brothers, but. <laughs> Well, if it gets to that point, you know, we've got uh, about an hour and 20 minutes to go. If that's where we end up going with it, then that's where we end up going with it. But let us welcome our guest tonight. Uh, he is calling us all the way from the U.K. Matt Wingett is a writer with an interest in all sorts of things. Uh, and he has uh, he's written for television. Uh, he's a hypnotist, and he's helped people get over phobias. Maybe he can help me get over some of my phobias as well. And uh, he's also an author of a number of books, including the new one, Conan Doyle and the Mysterious World of Light. And Matt Wingett joins us tonight, even though it's like 3 o'clock in the morning over there. Good evening, Matt. Thank you for, for getting up this early or staying up this late. Good morning. Good morning. I had my uh, I had my my iPhone switched on to uh, to the alarm, but I, there's a duck noise on it. So I got woken up about half an hour ago by a duck quacking in my ear, which I think is always a very very gentle way to wake up to the day. It reminds me of Donald Duck. So uh, yeah, it's not the first time we've been accused of being some quacks either. So <laughs> I think it'll well, all work out. A bumtish. That was fantastic. <laughs> well, now you have a, a, a very personal connection with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. There's a reason why that uh, that this great literary giant actually drew your attention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I live in Portsmouth uh, on the south coast of the UK, and it's the place where Arthur Conan Doyle moved in 1882. And uh, he lives about, or he lives. I'm sorry, he lived. Uh, very early in the morning. Lived about uh, 130, uh, 130 years ago. He lived about 500, 800 yards from where I live now. And um, it just got me thinking about him. It got me thinking about uh, Conan Doyle and his writing. And, and slowly over time, I got to hear that he was a spiritualist, as well as being someone who had created Sherlock Holmes. And that just got me very, very interested. So... I started looking into it, and we're very fortunate in Portsmouth, which is that we've got something called the Arthur Conan Doyle Collection, Richard Lancelin Green Bequest. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, And uh, basically the story is that Richard Lancelin Green was a crazy collector, um, completely obsessive collector about uh, on Conan Doyle, and there are a few of them around. And he tried to work out what Conan Doyle was doing on every single day of his life. That's how obsessive he was about it. And collected 40,000 documents, 10,000 other artefacts, clothing, all sorts of things. And then when he died, they were all left to the Portsmouth uh, City Council. So I went in there and just started doing some research, and it's been great fun. I found a magazine... Well, I I won't jump ahead, because I've spoken for quite a bit there. So, Back to you. I I was going to say that, uh, you know, for... 
anybody that knows Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, obviously Sherlock Holmes comes first and foremost, but he wrote uh, various other uh, books and, and other works of literature, and he was actually somebody who spent some time writing in the horror genre and writing a lot of things that were suspenseful. So not everything was, you know, cut and dry detective, you know, mystery writing with him. It wasn't all Agatha Christie. There was some some spooky stuff to a lot of his writings. Well, I mean, I've got to say, actually, um, he always considered uh, Sherlock Holmes to be the least um, impressive of his work. And he actually said, if I remembered, if I remembered only for Sherlock Holmes in a hundred years' time, I shall consider my, I, I will consider myself to have been a failure. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so you know, um, he continually tried to get rid of Sherlock Holmes, and he, he only, um, I mean, he killed him off once in 1892, the uh, the death at the Reichenbach Falls, or, or the uh, the, you know the Rockenbach Falls uh, episode, um, but then you know people just asked for him to come back, and so hence the hand of the Baskervilles. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, but his other stuff was fantastic. He used to write as well, I should say. Uh, his horror was was really interesting, and it, it wasn't only horror; it was also kind of speculative comic fiction. Um, but I mean, one of the most notable horror stories that he wrote was one called The Ring of Thoth. And the Ring of Thoth is this story about this guy who's in the Louvre in Paris and sees a high priest from ancient Egypt reawoken. And this high priest, this mummy from ancient Egypt, then tries to find uh, the high priestess, his, his, his lover from back then, and, and tries to find a modern woman who's like that. And if anyone's ever seen the movie The Mummy... Um, they'll know that that's what that story is based on, although it's never actually, it was never actually attributed to Conan Doyle. So his, his influence is really wide. Has that kind of had a resurgence, <clears throat> excuse me, with the, um, with, with all of the, the, the Sherlock buzz, or are people rediscovering kind of some of his older stuff, or are they really kind of just focusing on that? Well, I think what happens is, I mean, uh, my, my sort of, early in to Arthur Conan Doyle was actually The Lost World. I'd seen the Sherlock Holmes movies and or Sherlock Holmes TV series, but I'd never really got into them. Um, uh, but I, I read The Lost World and thought that was great, and that's when I was a kid, you know. Um, and it was much later that I got into the Holmes stories, and suddenly I just thought, these are fantastic. And I, So my story isn't, isn't typical. But I think I think most people start off with Holmes, and and then if they're curious, they start to look further, and it it, it really yeah, it's really interesting stuff. The other stuff that he does. Well, one of the things that's most interesting about that Holmes character is he's somebody who has been, as Chris was saying, he's been able to adapt. You know, you have obviously, you know, the, the Basil Rathbone and all that is going to be the most famous, iconic portrayal. But, I mean, in recent years alone, you've got the, 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 the Sherlock TV show. Uh, you've got the, the, uh, the other TV show with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, I'm sorry, Elementary is the American one. Then you have the, the Benedict Cumberbatch show, and then you have the Robert Downey Jr. movies. So they're they're keeping the, the character alive, but they're doing it in different ways and with different characterizations and portrayals. He seems to be a very malleable character. Yeah, absolutely. And don't you just love the Robert Downey Jr. one? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And funny. I have to say, I, I'm obsessed with Sherlock. I was actually... It's, it's interesting having spent some time with your book this week and I'm watching Sherlock as my kids go to bed as I'm doing uh, promotional work, and I, I'm not even making the connection between the man that you were talking about in the book and the and the Cumberbatch uh, stuff that I'm seeing and the Freeman stuff, stuff that I'm seeing. So, do you, do you know what? It is absolutely extraordinary how um, what's happened in many ways is that people. I mean, and we're doing it now in in many ways. What's what's happened is that 
um, the character Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, or, or the person Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and his his one one of his many creations, Sherlock Holmes, have in some way mapped over onto each other, so that people think that Conan Doyle was Sherlock Holmes, or was very much like Sherlock Holmes. And and actually, the truth is that Conan Doyle was a much wider, bigger, rounder person. You know, he had so many, many more interests. Um, In 1887, in Portsmouth, um, uh, that's when he invented Sherlock Holmes. He was, uh, he he had the the Beaton's annual uh, study in Scarlet novel uh, produced in 1887. But in that same year, uh, he was attending seances, he was doing experiments in telepathy. Uh, he became utterly convinced of the truth of spiritualism when he sat with a medium who who told him something that he just couldn't uh, couldn't explain how he how he knew this about him. Um, and you know, he, his his mind was into so many other things. He became a founder member of the Hampshire Psychical Society um, two years later. So, uh, and he rem- and he joined the Society for Psychical Research in 1893. Um, so, this is somebody who is, you know, a very, very different character from Sherlock Holmes. And, it, and it, it's interesting that we do this because, you know, we don't think that Robert Downey Jr. is Sherlock Holmes, but we do think, in some way, that Conan Doyle is Sherlock Holmes. But he's only, he's a writer, and he just he's made this one character happen. Well, one of the the things I mean, you mentioned that he sat with a with a medium, and, the, and that medium was kind of what convinced him. But what led up to him deciding to sit down with that medium? Was there a tragedy in his life that led to him looking to make that connection? Wow, that's a good question. That is a good question because there's nothing there's nothing obvious um, that says you know uh, this guy. Um, this guy suffered some terrible, terrible tragedy. But I, I do think there are there are contributory factors. Um, his father was an alcoholic, and when Conan Doyle came out of Edinburgh University in 1881, he'd gone through a kind of rationalist, Enlightenment-style education as a doctor, and. His view at the time was very simple that um, you know, and it was and it was quite bleak. And it was we have no soul, we are machines, and uh, you know that's the that's the end of the matter. He actually wrote in uh, in his uh, Memories and Adventures, when the candle goes out, that's the end of it. Uh, and you know, when he looked at his father with his alcohol problems, I mean, his father was actually admitted into a mental hospital uh, and detained for the last, I think, you know, twenty years of his life or fifteen years of his life, somewhere around there. Um, uh, when he looked at his father, you know, actually the evidence fitted the bill perfectly. Uh, you know, he, he drank, uh, the alcohol interfered with the computer that was his brain and made him ill. And that was his view. But I think at some deeper level, he wanted to find another way to see his father's illness. He was, he was, he was troubled by, you know, the, the nature of, of human personality, by the soul. And later he did come to, to a second realisation or to, to what he considered to be a, another possibility, which was that actually it's not the, it's not the machinery of the body and the brain, uh, you know, uh, that, that is actually really where the, where the body or where the, uh, where the personality is housed. And the reason that alcohol is the problem is not that it affects, affects uh, you know, that it affects the, uh, the body only, but the soul can't communicate with the body because the alcohol gets in the way. 
And so this was a way for him to kind of excuse his father, um, who, um, uh, you know, who then he could say, well, his, his soul lives on and he was fine. It's just that his body let him down. So there were these other things that kind of contributed. Um, and that's when he started to experiment. He, you know, in 1882, he started doing, or 1883, he started doing experiments in telepathy and, and kind of went on from there. And so he felt that because of that, because of the way that he felt that the human body was comprised, that telepathy seemed like a natural probability. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in, in, that was 1883. Uh, he, started, um, uh, he started doing these experiments with a guy called Henry Ball. And... Um, uh, he was a local architect, and what they would do is they would sit at opposite ends of the room, and, and he had this theory that the brain produced something like a secretion or excretion of thought, and, uh, and that a sensitive mind could pick up this, this kind of excretion of thought. It's actually very much like um, uh, kind of like a radio theory, you know, radio wave theory in some ways. Um, and so they would sit at opposite ends of the room, and Conan Doyle actually wrote time and time again, I've sat at one end of the room, and I've drawn a picture with my back to Henry Ball, and Henry Ball has has reproduced it. So, yeah, he became absolutely convinced of telepathy, and that was the starting point of his uh, of his experiments. And it, it just seemed odd that somebody was uh, so interested in strange and unusual topics like that, but at the same time, you know, he creates a character that is known as probably the single most rational mind in, in literature, that uh, he creates somebody who is so grounded and, and so much in that... You know, that it has to deduce things through proof more than anything, and he is willing to kind of go out on a limb in some of his own personal beliefs. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's that's what's kind of interesting because I don't think there is a contradiction, and this is the thing that really interested me in the first place is, you know, what is this apparent contradiction that's going on? But you've got to bear in mind that, you know, he was a scientist, he did do experiments. And uh, I think we'd criticize them today and say that they weren't kind of properly controlled experiments. But they were good enough for him, uh, with the scientific mind, to to believe them. And he wasn't the only one. I think this is kind of one of the really important things in about 19th century and early 20th century spiritualism, is that there were a lot of scientists who were also spiritualists. Um, probably, you know, one of the most surprising ones is Alfred Russell Wallace. Um, Alfred Russell Wallace uh, was uh, the inventor of the theory of evolution alongside Charles Darwin. They, they came to the same, the same conclusions at the same time and, in fact, delivered a paper on... Uh, uh, delivered papers at the same um, talk uh, on evolution. And it was Charles... It was uh, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace's presence which pushed Charles Darwin on to uh, write more quickly The Origin of Species so that he could beat, um, he could beat Wallace to it. Um, so, you know, these are, uh, uh, this is a serious scientist. Uh, you've got Sir Oliver Lodge, who laid down key patents in telegraphy. You've got all sorts of people. You've got, um, uh, oh, what's his name? I forgot. <laughs> Excuse me, it's early in the morning. I've forgotten. There's another scientist who, who laid down the foundations of nuclear physics. These guys were all into, um, deep believers in spiritualism, you know, and, and the possibility that there was a soul and an afterlife. But was there any was there any uh, thing in your research that kind of led to and I, this is probably a much bigger discussion for for you know I know we're up against the hour but 
why were scientists so much more open to it when there seems to be in today's uh, in today's world a huge clash between uh, science and metaphysics and science and, and what paranormal investigators do and things like that? Why? What is there anything that kind of hinted at why they were so much more open? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a time when whole new worlds are opening up to Victorian scientists. You know, if you think about it, sort of 1840s, 18, no, about 1860s, somewhere around there, um, W.C. Crookes uh, starts to um, uh, discover radio waves. Um, you know, that is much earlier than, than the kind of Marconi experiments that happened in the 1890s. So you've got that going on, which means that there's this whole world appearing which shows that there's a world beyond the world of the senses and so we have you know later on we have marconi kind of proving that you know and and other uh, people who are into the kind of wireless side of things showing that we also have for example uh, x-rays and uh, with the invention of x-rays you've got you've got the ability to affect um uh, film photographic film with something that you cannot see. And, I mean, Marie Curie later on uh, attended seances because she was fascinated. You know, Marie Curie, the, the great radium, um, uh, you know, scientist, um, she was fascinated by the idea that tables were lifting off the ground and she went to uh, seances genuinely looking for a new form of energy that was lifting tables off the ground. So, you know, there was... It, Everything was open to investigation, and the thing is that at the time, until you've investigated something, you can't discount it, and you're going to come up with loads and loads of theories um, which might explain why this is kind of going on, and there were speculative scientists, um, as well as, you know, hard, hard-nosed scientists who, 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 at that time, were just well up for uh, finding how this was happening and making the assumption that it was true. And you had organizations that were forming, such as uh, the Ghost Club in the 1860s and the Societal for Cyclical Research, kind of following that, where you had a mixture of both those who were believers and those who were skeptics actually being able to work hand-in-hand, hand, something that I, I think uh, you know, would, would be hard-pressed <laughs> to happen today. Well, do you know, that's so interesting. I, I went and addressed the Ghost Club last week because they're still going. Mm. And... Um, yeah, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of split down the middle. You've got those who believe and those who don't. And and, and it's all, you know, we had a good few pint of, pints of beer after I gave the talk about uh, Conan Doyle and the Mysterious World of Light. And, um, you know, uh, over a beer or two, it was it was a very friendly chatter. There was no, um, <laughs> there was no animosity between the two sides. There's no, no standing outside and, 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 and fisticuffs at dawn, you know. It was, it's all very good. No, we so, we we only get that way when there's only one beer left. That's what. <laughs> yes, there's plenty flowing, so there was no danger of that. Um, yeah, I mean, so you know, the, I mean, the, the Ghost Club is a really interesting organisation because when it first started in the 1860s, I mean, its members included Charles Dickens, uh, you know, not scientists, but people on, you know, people who just had a general interest in this kind of stuff. And of course, Dickens was a great ghost story writer himself. Um, Conan Doyle was a member. And yes, I mean he was certainly uh, he was certainly on the science side, and he, he was very very much later on a uh, you know a very strong believer. He, I think from the eighteen eighties he he actually appears in Light magazine, and and this is what I was going to say to you about the research that I did at um, uh, the research that I did in Portsmouth archives is I found a magazine called Light magazine for which Conan Doyle contributed, 
And uh, that's really the magazine that you can start to trace his entire history as a spiritualist because he writes for the magazine. Uh, he has a very close relationship with the magazine and, and over a period of 30, 40 years he, he's continually um, sending in information about his, about his, um, his spiritualism. And that's why I, why I published the book. Like part of it is, is republishing the, the original letters and articles that Conan Doyle wrote. Well, coming up in the next hour, we'll get more in-depth with some of that, what he was writing about. And we'll also talk a little bit about uh, his relationship with Harry Houdini and how that had an impact on the belief in spiritualism, not only for, for both uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini, but for the millions of fans that both had around the world. So we'll get into all of that. And, of course, we'll take some of your questions at 508 996 You can also text them to us at 67664 just start your texts off with the letters WBSM, or you can send them to us on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive. We have so many different ways for people to get involved in the conversation. And, uh, and one of the things that we'll talk about a little bit later on, too, is there is a connection between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and the south coast of Massachusetts, where we broadcast from. It's a very small, slight connection, but we'll, I'll share that with everybody coming up in the next hour as well. And, of course, if you want to check out Jeff's uh, – Jeff, if you want to check out uh, uh, Matt's research on this topic, Matt, give everybody the website of where they can check it out during the news. Uh, yeah, so um, there's the Indiegogo campaign. It's probably the, the, the one that kind of has got me spouting off on, on a video. Um, so you would want want to go to the Indiegogo campaign. So it's Indiegogo.com, projects Conan Doyle in the Mysterious World of Light. So if you just put in a search for that, you'll, you'll turn up the uh, the right page. See, I just hear the, the English accent, Matt, and I just I just think you're Jeff Holder. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> apologies for that. That's a, you know, you just you, you get kind of lost in, in the accents. And, and I, I think that uh, that uh, certainly, you know, lends, it, it always just sounds so much better coming out of an English accent than it does coming out of our South Coast Boston area accents, you know. <laughs> you're wicked smart, Matt. You're wicked smart. Well, thank you kindly, sir. All right, so we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more with Matt Wingett about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, and again, as I said, we can also take your calls as well, 508-996-0500, Text them to us at 67664. Email them, spookycrew at com, or put them up on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive. Back in a bit. My co-host tonight from Florida, Chris Balzano, also on the line. And uh, we just had somebody joining us in the studio as well. We have uh, Greg DeRozier's joining us on the air, and he's going to hang out. And Greg, I'm going to give you a live mic so that you can feel free to jump into the discussion if you want to at any point. All right. I still hit the wrong one. Let's try this now. A- am I? Oh. There we go. There it is. I never get the numbers right on those other mics. <laughs> uh, but, uh, of course, everybody remembers Greg from Saturday morning with Tim Weisberg. He was newsman extraordinaire. Oh, yes. Now he's on assignment most Saturdays. Yeah, and tending to the beard. 
Yes, you have to. <laughs> the beards take a lot of work. Did you notice I had to trim mine down a little bit? I did, but the made barbershop it, treatment did well. Made it look a little more aerodynamic. <laughs> and, and you're looking finely coiffed there with a, a new hairstyle. Oh, so. thank you. Either that or I'm just used to seeing you with a hat on. No, on it's, it, it is new. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it works out well, and uh, nobody can see you on spooky TV, but we'll, uh, we'll find a way to, to get you on camera at some point. <laughs> and, of course, uh, also joining us is our guest, Matt Wingett. He's joining us all the way from the U.K., and, uh, of course, we are very glad to have him joining us because it's like, what now, 4 o'clock in the morning over there, Matt? Yes, lovely fresh morning it is too, I'm sure, in, Lu- out there in the dark. <laughs> Luckily, though, it's a, it's a weekend, so it's not like you really had to get up early anyway, right? Yes, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and Chris, I know that uh, you have a, a more, uh, you know, a, a more expanded bio of Matt. Why don't you let everybody know a little bit more about his background and his work? Uh, sure. Um, like we said, he, he's an English uh, screenwriter, journalist, novelist, songwriter, hypnotist. Um, he's best, best known for his work on t- the television episode The Bill, which he said never came to America because we didn't get the ideas that cops didn't have guns. Um, he wanted to be a writer from his youth and joined a publishing company in 1986. We learned about the trade of writing and book production. His writing developed over the next five years uh, until... 1991, he was hired to write episode of The Bill. His brother, Matt, Mark, I'm sorry, played Jim Carver on the show, and he was scrupulous about maintaining separation from his brother. His first script was submitted um, under the name Matthew's Brother to deflect charges of nepotism. Uh, he created the character John Bolton to play foil against Jim Carver in the episode The Faith and the System, and he returned as a full cast member in 1995 in the episode Save, which was promoted to DS. Um... Matthew received a blow to the head in kickboxing accident and underwent brain surgery at Southampton Neurological Unit to relieve pressure on the brain caused by a subdural hematoma. After this period, he lost his creative drive. Uh, but in 2008, he approached hypnotist Paul McKenna to see if he could help with his creativity. After a 40-minute session, Matthew found he was able to write creatively again. And he's now a hypnotist himself, master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming, and is currently working on several other books. This book... Um, is coming out, you said, at the end of March, right? Uh, actually, 11th of March. The 11th of March, okay. Yeah. And I also would just like to, uh, before we leave the discussion over, uh, we've gotten uh, texts and messages from people from all across the world listening to Spooky South Coast, and I got one of the more interesting ones just a little bit ago. Um, the Everett Police Department is well represented, sitting in a cemetery, listening to Spooky South Coast, <laughs> kind of getting freaked out by, by what we're talking about, so... Uh, hopefully they stay warm. It's my cousin, too. So hopefully they stay warm and safe, and uh, we'll dedicate this next half hour to them. Absolutely. <laughs> and thank, you, thank you for tuning in, everybody that is. And uh, we actually we got a text question uh, via the text line here at 67664. So if you want to text in a question, you can do so by typing in 67664 in your you know, two line for your text messages, and then start off your message with the letters WBSM. You have to put those four letters at the beginning of the text for it to filter into us. And and the question for you, Matt, this person wants to know if you have any thoughts on Joseph Bell, the alleged real-life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a huge expert on Sherlock Holmes. My focus was really on uh, Conan, uh, on his... on. Uh, 
Conan Doyle spiritualism. So, do I have an opinion on him? Not really, to be honest with you. I'm not going to. I'm not going to sit here and and make out that I'm an expert on something that I'm not. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it certainly makes sense. In in uh, when you take a look at Joseph Bell, and you know, he was pretty well known for his brilliant powers of the deduction. So it's 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 easy to make that connection. Uh, I, I think Conan Doyle, if, if I remember rightly, Conan Doyle uh, in because uh, I've read I've read quite a lot of biographies over the last couple of years. Uh, uh, I think Conan Doyle does indeed actually uh, credit him. Uh, as being the inspiration or one of the major inspirations for for, Canada, for for Sherlock Holmes. It's not like somebody later on went, oh, that's a bit like Joseph Bell. It, I think it really was something that Conan Doyle himself recognised, yes. But it, it's easy, too, when, when you're creating a character. It's okay to take a little bit of inspiration, but when, when you are creating a character, you kind of want to have uh, as much of... You know, your own, kind of some of your own personality. And as you were saying, you know, in the in the first hour, there was some of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in Sherlock Holmes, and, and there has to be, I think, for you to to really flesh out a character. I think there has to be some part of your psyche that works its way into a character. Uh, and I know that you said you're not really an expert on Sherlock Holmes, but can you see a lot of correlations in the way that Holmes went about his detective work and the way that Doyle, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle approached the idea of spiritualism and the paranormal? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yes. Um, I mean, let's, you know, when, when we talk about a writer, you know, creating a character, what they're really doing is separating off elements of themselves or working them their ways. Just It's like an actor, really, isn't it, when you're writing? This is my experience anyway. Is, you know, I mean, when I've kind of produced my, my best fictional work, it's because I've thought my way into that character. I'm basically acting that character out and pulling on parts of myself, drawing on parts of myself in order to do that. I'm sure that's true with Conan Doyle. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, his spiritualism was, um, uh, you know, it had it had in his mind. He was very happy with it, a, a scientific basis, and his approach to it. Um, you know, he, he bearing in mind that we we're, we're, it was entering a whole new territory. You know, he thought up ideas for experiments to actually, in his mind, prove these things. The problem with um, a séance is that it relied on. Um, too many variables. It, it couldn't be controlled in the same way as a modern experiment. And and sometimes you would get messages that were completely off and completely wrong. Sometimes you'd get messages that were uncannily accurate. Well, one of those was, was the one that con uh, that convinced him in 1887 of spiritualism. Um, but there was always this possibility that the medium might be committing a fraud. There was always a possibility that um, you were in some way mistaken. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's one very famous seance that he attended, and this is when he was utterly convinced. After his son died in uh, 1918, in 1919 he attended a seance and was utterly convinced that his son manifested uh, in the dark, spoke to him, kissed him, and then and then demanifested. Just extraordinary. But, um, you know, it's... it's uh, the science side of it at the time, there, there was no way... Uh, to set it up, you know, they didn't have like infrared cameras and stuff like this right. to see if the medium was cheating in the way that we could today, for example. But there is, I mean, if, if you look back at some of the things that went on during the spiritualism era, I mean, you got to think that a guy like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is smart enough, is intelligent enough, and rational enough not to fall for some of these fraudsters that are pulling cheesecloth out of their mouth and claiming right. that it's ectoplasm. You got to think that for him to say he had an actual experience, it had to have been something pretty convincing but at the same time you know he's also got an emotional reason to be invested in spiritualism right. as so many people did that that bought into it 
Right. And, and one of the things that's really interesting about uh, Conan Doyle is that he has this mode of thinking which, once one part of an argument is proven, he accepts all of it. So... Um, you know, so for him, he kind of he has an experience in uh, in 1887 where um, he uh, he speaks with a with a medium, and the medium, um, what happens is that uh, they're they're sitting around a table, and prior to the to the meeting over the previous few weeks, Conan Doyle had been thinking about whether or not to read a book called Comic Dramatists of the Restoration by Lee Hunt. And he hadn't mentioned it to anyone. He was just thinking, you know, should I do this or not? And, you know, in that kind of oddly Victorian way, he, he was concerned that it, uh, whilst it had lots of period detail from the Restoration period, um, that it might, uh, it, because of its moral tone, it might cause him moral pollution. <laughs> so he, uh, it, whether or not he should read it, he wasn't sure. Um, uh, they sat down at this seance, and he's said at the time, you know, well, you know, we, we did various things that the, the, the medium, Mr. Horsted, was, um, uh, you know, he was clairaudient, he was clairvoyant, but we couldn't check that. Uh, so then we did some automatic writing, and, and the, the message that he got through the automatic writing was, this gentleman is a healer, tell him not to read uh, Lee Hunt's book. And that was it. He said, how on earth could he know that? I'd not mentioned to anyone. It wasn't telepathy, because I wasn't thinking about it at the time. It must be that something got into my soul and probed it and understood it. And that's an active psychic experience, spiritual experience. Uh, that was it for him. Everything was proven, which is, you know, uh, it's quite an extraordinary leap to make. But I think it's a leap that a lot of people did make in that era because, you, you know, and, and Chris, we were kind of discussing this off the air a little bit, but... It seems like our country and, and your country both had different reasons, kind of the same reason, but at least different impetuses to make the move toward believing in spiritualism. And, and Chris, of course, we've talked for many years here on Spooky South Coast about the United States involvement of it coming from the Civil War, right? Right. And it, and it, it's, it was that, that death and that massive amount of, of death that was kind of facing them, as well as not understanding what was going on. And, and the first time... Um, being disconnected, dying in a place that you were disconnected from. You know, the good death, is, as, we, uh, as we call it. And it seems like, um, Matt, that there was something very similar that happened years later over uh, in your neck of the woods. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, British spiritualism was caused by um, the Fox Sisters. That's, that's where it all came from, in Hydesville, uh, USA. Um, they had a sighting, or, or they started to manifest uh, ghosts, um, uh, apparitions, uh, they start communicating with a with a being whom wh whom they called Mister Splitfoot, which is an interesting name and uh, is a nickname of the devil. Um, uh, that was in 1858, and the Fox Sisters toured the world and they made an impression in in, um, in Britain, and that really kicked off the British spiritualist movement for sure. But was there? I mean, obviously, you had a lot of tragedy in, in your country with uh, you yes. know, World War One and and having uh, a lot of the uh, young men in, in that country who were involved yeah. in that fight. And, and, you know, the same thing, where you're seeing, you know, family members go off and, you know, a short time later they're coming back in a pine box. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I, I think it's not necessarily the death in a foreign country and all that kind of stuff. You know, Britain had a huge empire at the time. That was going on all the time. <laughs> you know, troops would be based out in India. They'd be killed. Um, you know, the 1850s um, Indian mutiny, there was lots of people killed in uh, Brits in, in, uh, in 
in India. I think the big difference was this. <clears throat> the big difference in the Great War was that never before in Britain had it been seen that so many families um, were experiencing grief at the same time. I think prior to this, what would happen is that, you know, someone would die in your family and you would have a community around you who could in some way support you and help you. But if everybody, everybody um, is is plunged into grief, then there's no kind of levelling um, leveling hand anymore to kind of uh, to get you back on the on, on, to get you back up and to and to level your your kind of emotions. And I think there was a huge kind of mass hysteria uh, in between 1914 um, and probably when it going on way into the 1920s. Yes, and it was one of those times and one of those eras where <clears throat> when you're looking for Answers, and we've seen we've seen it here in the, in the post nine eleven United States that sure. when, you, when you're looking for answers, you turn inward and you turn spiritual, and that will allow you to kind of open your mind to more possibilities. And at the same time, you want to believe that there is no finality to death; that it is just a transition because it becomes more comforting that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the nine eleven thing is a really interesting, um, a really interesting, uh, you know, point. I can remember I was, you know, early days of Facebook that I I was on, you know, Facebook and just seeing loads of people just going, oh well, this is a judgment from God. And I was thinking, well, you know, in what way did 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 that happen? You know, how did you make that connection that these lunatics driving an, an air plane or a couple of airplanes into buildings has got something to do with God? That just, you know, the, the, where's the connection? There? It makes no sense. Um, but plenty of people made that connection. And and really what I find to be the most interesting, too, is that, as you were mentioning with, with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, it has to do with what your mindset is going into this investigation. Sure. And, and I had mentioned in the last hour Harry Houdini, who was very good friends with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and whereas you know Doyle had tragedy in his life, and that led to him kind of accepting spiritualism you know it kind of went the opposite way with Houdini where his mother died and he sought out the help of a medium to contact her and instead all he found was a bunch of fakes and charlatans and yes. here's two guys that are, you know, are probably of the same type of ilk in terms of their way and their approach to the world but they have two completely different experiences with spiritualism yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting with Houdini because actually Lady Jean Conan Doyle that was um, Arthur's wife uh, she was also a medium and she did a sitting with Conan Doyle and wrote sorry with with Harry Houdini and 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 Conan Doyle and wrote uh, a load of messages from from his mum from the other side uh, oh my darling boy I miss you so and all this kind of stuff um, nothing with any substance in it um, and Houdini saw that, and, uh, you know, he was very polite to Conan Doyle, and they were very good friends, really very, very good friends, Conan Doyle and Houdini. And he was very polite to Conan Doyle, but he, he went away and mentioned to a friend later, he said, well, you know, my mum was Italian, she couldn't string two words of English together, and suddenly, she, suddenly she's writing to me in perfect English. How did that happen? Uh, so he wasn't convinced. You've also got to bear in mind that although he did turn to a medium, um, Harry Houdini started off as a fake medium himself. That was how he made his, uh, his early uh, living, uh, was, was uh, basically pulling the wool over people's uh, eyes at seances. And he knew all the tricks of the, of the, um, of the, uh, of, of the mediums. Um, and he would tell Conan Doyle about this, and Conan Doyle would say, yes, that's fine, you, you know all the tricks, but the fact is that some of these mediums aren't using those tricks, they're just getting the same effects and results by spiritual means. And in <laughs> fact, uh, 
the story goes that Doyle actually thought that Houdini was a very powerful medium um, and was blocking, uh, was blocking, whether intentionally or unintentionally, other mediums from reading him. And that's, that was the, the spark of, the, of a lot of the disagreements between them. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, as I've been going through Light Magazine, I've not reached that that stage. The, the period that I cover is eighteen eighty seven to nineteen twenty, which is the kind of the high period of Conan Doyle's life. So I've, I've, that's going to be the next project. The next book is going to is going to take nineteen twenty to twenty five. But yes, he he did. Um, he, you know, he, he was. It was it was a very strange relationship between Houdini and and, and Doyle because Doyle was was. On one side, you know, there was there were massive discussions about whether or not he was a real spirit, whether he was genuinely a spiritualist. And there 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 are mentions in Light magazine of people saying, "Well, you know, we all know he's pretending that he's not got psychic powers, really. You know, we all know he's pretending because that makes him more interesting because right. people are baffled by how he does his things. Whereas if it was if it could be explained through spiritualism and psychic powers, then that would just be too obvious, wouldn't it?" And then, of course, Harry Houdini dies, and then he realizes all this stuff is real and says, wow, ain't that a punch of the gut? <laughs> oh. I'm sorry, too soon? Too soon? Oh. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, 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 yeah, I had to go there. Right, right, right now, my friend Anna Hill, who is obsessed with Harry Houdini, is like, I'm going to get you for that one, Weisberg. Uh, but, you know, you're mentioning, though, the idea of, you know, going through the research, Matt, of Light Magazine, and, uh, and of course, the, the name of your book uh, directly relates to that. It's Conan Doyle in the Mysterious World of Light, yes. referencing yes. Light Magazine. So what was this publication, Light Magazine? Well, when did it come about, and what was its focus? Yeah, it, uh, it was actually started, I think, in 1881, um, and uh, its purpose was, you know, in this first flash of, of British spiritualism in the 1870s, 1880s, you know, we saw all of these people come together we saw um we saw uh, you know charles dickens william makepeace thackeray all these guys joining uh, the ghost club we saw later on in the 1890s the society for psychical research and uh, basically um uh, a, a lot of these guys knew each other anyway uh, there was another another very famous british medium called um uh, w stainton moses and uh, M- moses was one of the founder members of Light Magazine, and, and basically the idea was to actually start to share information amongst among people who had had psychic experiences. It was it was subtitled uh, something like a, a journal uh, dedicated to psychical, mystical, and occult research, and basically that's what it was. It was it's kind of in many ways uh, kind of a precursor to things like the Fortean Times that we have today. Um, and, and in fact, Light Magazine still exists. Um, it, it, it's, it's also uh, the organ of uh, the London Spiritualist Alliance, as it was at the time. So it was, it was actually dedicated. You know, it was, it was, it was part of a, a larger umbrella group of, of spiritualists. And, and so, in this magazine, you know, as you're going through the archives, you're finding these these articles that, that Doyle contributed. I mean, what was that like at the time to have him contributing to this magazine? Is it you know what? What can we kind of make that an akin to, based on what his audience was at the time, and to see him in there? Would that be something like you know, like when we see Stephen King uh, submitting uh, something to uh, a literary magazine, or, or well, like, yeah, I mean, probably not Stephen King because I'm just trying to think of someone you know on the other side who's not not on the other side. <laughs> Excuse me, <laughs> on the other side. This just sounds quite weird, doesn't it? Um, you know, someone who's actually a, a, more of a rationalist writer. Because, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise, really, that Stephen King believes in ghosts, let's face it. That's true. I mean, yeah. You know, but 
I, I'm just trying to think of somebody else like um, I don't know, like I mean, over here, Frederick Forsyth or John Le Carre, I guess. You know, sort of very kind of you know, clean, uh, intelligent, smart writers. Uh, you know, also into this. I mean, we've got to bear in mind in, in the 1880s, he was completely obscure. He was completely unknown, so no one took any notice. Um, you know, apart from a few spiritualists who were involved in Light magazine, no one took any notice that an obscure doctor working in South Sea might be interested in ghosts. It's, it's really in 1916 when he comes out as a spiritualist again in the magazine. That's when it really kicks off and people go, what? Uh, yeah, they're really surprised. And, and when that did happen in 1916, uh, and you said that, that was a reaction, how did that have an impact on him as as a literary figure at that time? Did it did it help him out? Did it hurt him? Did it did his reputation suffer as a result of it? No, I don't think so. We're, we're, you're right in the middle of a war, and basically there wasn't really enough time to critique him. Um, that came later, and he was also providing an extraordinary service to you know to these people. But he's, he he sort of came out, I, I use this, this word in inverted commas because it's such a kind of comfortable, easy way of, you know, shorthand way of saying, announcing to the public that he was a spiritualist. Um, uh, you know, he came out as a spiritualist in 1916 by basically talking about where the soul was during unconsciousness, and he talked about some of his own experiences whilst he'd been unconscious. Then he talked about experience of his son, uh, who'd been ill, and had apparently seen being able to remotely view something going on in another room. Uh, and this was kind of the starting point. It started off as a trickle of letters about kind of this abstract idea about where the soul is during unconsciousness. And then in late uh, 1916, early 1917, he puts forward the idea that actually spiritualism is a new revelation. I mean, this is what he's, you know, this is where he's got with it. It's, it's, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And here we are, you know, nearly 2,000 years later. And the next part of the revelation, the new revelation, is spiritualism. And uh, that's when people start to take a little bit of notice, I think. Hmm. Well, I, I do think that uh, when you look at kind of the entire mood and, and the entire rationale of the country at that time, you know, you're, you're looking at a point in time when a lot of people who might have cast that aside in the past were willing to accept it into their lives. And, and we've seen that a lot here in the United States. Like, for example, uh, Michael Shermer is one of the most uh, noted skeptics around here. Mm. And, and he had a paranormal experience, and he actually wrote about an interaction that he had with a ghost that changed his mind. So, I mean, I think that when extreme situations happen, you're willing to see people change their minds a lot more easily. And, and again, I always say it comes down to having that personal experience. And for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, it was certainly that personal experience that made all the difference to him. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that it was the death of his son in the war that caused him to uh, to convert to spiritualism. And, and one of the points of the book was to say that he was, you know, he was into spiritualism from very, very early on. After 1887, he kind of he kind of vacillated. He went between being interested in it and, and being very focused on it, and then also having huge fame, which meant that he didn't really have the time to look into it further. And also, um, after his first wife died in 1906, uh, his new wife, Jean Leckie, um, she, um, she discouraged him from, from attending seances because Jean Leckie had been his, his mistress or platonic mistress for about 15 years because his wife had been very, very ill, dying of tuberculosis. And Jean lived with them. She lived in the same house uh, with um, 
Conan Doyle and, and Louise, his first wife, as this platonic mistress, is how, how she's been described by many writers. And, and of course, after Louise died, Jean inc- discouraged him from attending seances because the last thing she needed was for her rival for 15 years to still be a rival, even after her death. Um, so it was really in about 1914, 1915, when uh, some of Conan Doyle's, uh, his nephew was killed in the war, his brother-in-law, Malcolm Leckie, was killed in the war, and that's really when Jean started to attend seances as well. So the whole family then kind of went, oh, okay, um, you know, I want to know that he's okay on the other side. So that was part of the, contrib- you know, the contributory factor. And uh, there was another factor, which was that they had uh, the, the children's nanny, was a woman called Lily Loder Simmons. And Lily, um, three of her brothers were killed in the war, and she became very, very depressed and ill. And as she weakened, she started to produce automatic writing, these messages from the other side. And there were messages in that um, that were very specific and that really they were the things that finally, I think the weight of evidence, it wasn't one thing in this case, but there was this weight of evidence that in 1916 he kind of, kind of finally, whilst he'd, he'd, he'd earlier said, yes, I believe in it, he'd kind of gone back on it. And then in 1916, after losing lots of people, so there was an emotional reason, and then there was a kind of scientific reason, which was Lily Loda Simmons and her stuff going on, that he finally just went, yeah, I believe and that's when he went public. And that led to his missionary work. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really... That was something that completely surprised me when I wrote the book. He starts his missionary work in 1917 by giving talks around the UK. In a year, um, he, in one year, he, he estimated that he gave... Uh, that he addressed 50,000 people at different meetings around Britain. I mean, he was absolutely tireless in his missionary work. In 1919, after the war, he uh, was the lead speaker at the Royal Albert Hall, uh, which on a, on a chilly uh, spring night, a freezing spring night in the snow, 7,000 people went to the Royal Albert Hall um, and, uh, and went to a, a, a national memorial service there. They, they actually had a one-minute silence. Um, you know, uh, that's a good six months before the actual real two-minute silence of the, or the, or the one that's, you know, the first one. 7,000 people in the Royal Albert Hall? Yeah. How many, what's capacity in there? How many it people? It was at the time. I, I checked this out because I thought it was a lot. Um, the capacity was 7,000 at the time. Wow, so now we know how many doyles it takes to fill the Albert Hall. <laughs> <laughs> Just one. Oh, dear. That's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> I've even patting myself on the back for that. No, I know. If, if only I went on the other side of the pond. But so, <laughs> I mean... Doing missionary, I mean, we say a lot of people that spread the word of spiritualism, but to have somebody actually, you know, taking up the cause and trying to spread the word who wasn't a medium. You know, normally the people that you saw going around yeah. spreading the word of it were people that were looking yeah. to make a dollar off of it. Sure. I mean, you know, and, he, and it's really interesting. He was utterly, utterly convinced of it. Um, and um, he reached a point where he brought our book, uh, you know, summarizing um, some of his history as a spiritualist called the new revelation you know i, I mentioned to you that, that he said that this was a new revelation and, and his first book was about spiritualism was called the new revelation and and in that he, he basically says you know once you've proven it once you know it's a, a fact there's no point going back over it and arguing it again now we have to look at how we take this belief forward what do we do with this and that what that's what he was interested in. he wanted to kind of you know s- spread the word out there and he did i mean it must he, he, you know 50,000 people in one year is a heck of a lot of people 
I think he must have addressed hundreds of thousands between 1916, when he comes out to the public, and 1920. Um, and in 1920, he leaves the shores of the UK um, to continue his missionary work in uh, Australia and New Zealand. That's where my book, this first, because it's the first volume in a, telling the, you know, a close history of his, of his uh, spiritualist um, activities, that's where my book finishes, as he leaves the shore of the UK. Uh, I'm really interested in this book, in, in, in that kind of, flourishing that flowering period where uh you know the, the extremes of the great war kind of pushed pushed him to um to to just spread the word however he could well well one question that i want to ask you and it comes a little bit later than the period that you focused on but maybe you have a little bit of knowledge of it and if not no big deal we can just move on but one of the figures that i'm obsessed with in the term mm. in terms of paranormal history is harry price because he's the guy who basically take you know what i do here and and what i do in all my work in the paranormal harry price laid the blueprint for that for taking this stuff and making it into a, a media spectacle and for drawing attention to it and and harry price and and uh, sir arthur conan doyle certainly did not get along no, they didn't. And um, I only know a very small, sketchy, uh, sketchy amount of information about Harry Price because that's that's the next area of my research. I'm, you know, I'm going to go back up to the College of Psychic Studies in uh, in London, get right in there and roll my sleeves up and start doing that next period of, of uh, Conan Doyle's life. So, yeah, it's not not something I know that much about, but I do know that he and uh, and Price clashed on on numerous occasions. Absolutely. From what I know, just about what I know about Harry Price, the, the main impetus was William Hope, who was yes. the spirit photographer. Uh, I guess uh, Harry Price tried to debunk it, and, and, and Doyle was friends with him and stuck up for him. So that led to a clash between the two of them, Doyle trying to have Price thrown out of the National Laboratory for Psychical Research. And, and it was just always a, a tumultuous relationship that Price had with a lot of the people of the time. So I'm not surprised that when you had somebody like Doyle who was, you know, a full-bore believer, that he would clash with somebody like Price. And, and it also, you know, it, it also helped make headlines for Harry Price, which probably had something to do with it as well. Well, I mean, you know, Doyle was also a very, very stubborn man. Once he'd, once he'd set his mind to something, he, he just completely stuck with it. And, um, you know, I've, my, my small bit of reading that I've done about uh, Harry Price, I mean, it's, it's to do with the, the Hope Circle and uh, to do with marked uh, photographic plates, if I remember rightly, uh, which he'd, he'd secretly marked before then going to, uh, to, to William Hope so that he could check to see whether the photographic plates had been changed uh, or, 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 you know, swapped with, uh, with other ones. And, indeed, the ones that had the spirit photographs on didn't have the, uh, didn't have the X-ray on, uh, as far as I remember. See, I'm right. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, so um, what's interesting about that is when Conan Doyle was presented that evidence, basically he kind of bullied his way through to getting everyone else to accept um, to accept that um, actually somebody else had been tampering with the photographic plates and it wasn't William Hope. Um, that, that's, my, that's my reading of, the, uh, of that case. And I think that, that that's just such an extraordinary example of his utter bullheadedness and pigheadedness at that point. See, I'm, I'm very jealous because you do live in the U.K., so you have the opportunity to catch the, uh, the Harry Price Ghost Hunter TV movie that was on. Uh, we haven't gotten it here in America yet. So. Okay. Well, I, I, I don't know if – I haven't seen it myself, but I do know that members of the Ghost Club were – we're saying it's so inaccurate. Uh, well, Chris, Chris Balzano will tell you, uh, this was always my choice. I'm sorry that we lost him before we could make it happen, but I always wanted to see Christopher Lee play Harry Price. I thought that ah, would be perfect. Yeah. 
<laughs> there you go. I mean, I, I don't. I think he would have had the perfect demeanor, and and they had the the look. They looked the same too. So, but uh, that's somebody that I've always been, uh, you know, kind of uh, looked to as one of my heroes. And and I always love when people are talking about the paranormal and and paranormal television and paranormal radio, and they they talk about how you know Ghost Hunters got this all started. I'm like, well, not really. Uh, the Ghost Hunter got it started, Harry Price, back in well. the 1920s. But even before that, you know, you had guys like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who were bringing this to the forefront mm. yeah was yeah. i mean in joining the and we're talking about of course his his steps into spiritualism and, and his interest in spiritualism and how that grew over the years but was there ever any in any of the stuff that you've read that was in light magazine did he ever participate in an active paranormal investigation along the same lines of what we would think of it today where you went to a location where that was rumored to be haunted and and tried to conduct some sort of research research into seeing if there was a spirit there yeah he did i mean there were there were there were a couple of ones but probably the most famous one is the charmouth poltergeist um he was invited by the society for psychical research in 1893 to go along with two of the founder members frank podmore and sydney scott uh to investigate uh rumblings in a in a house in um in charmouth in dorset now it's a really interesting story this because it has two parts to it um if you read the New Revelation and, uh, you know, his, his, his later writings, he tells the story thus. He says, uh, we went out to, uh, to Charmouth, and, uh, which had been disturbed by, uh, you know, a big house in the countryside, which had been disturbed by poltergeist activity, and which the colonel, Colonel Elmore, uh, was becoming driven to distraction by and was genuinely, you know, afraid for his life. Uh, so they turn up, and they, the, the first night, nothing happens. They, they set up all of their, their traps, you know, so what they do is they, they put loads of threads across walkways to check whether there'd been any kind of physical um, presence um, where, this, uh, where this poltergeist activity comes from. It's, it's a terrible noise coming from inside the house. And, and he said on the second night, what happened was that they were woken at two in the morning by the um, sound of a cudgel, what, what sounded like a cudgel belabouring the kitchen table. So they ran through this big house, and, uh, and checked all of the uh, threads to see whether any passage had, had gone by, whether, whether anyone had passed through all the passages. They then opened the unlocked kitchen door, uh, sorry, the, the locked kitchen, go inside and find nothing there. Just, you know, this noise that had been being made stopped. There was nothing there. And that was, that's the story that he tells in the New Revelation. However, uh, there are notes from nearer to the time. Uh, in 1893, he spoke to a guy called Jack Payne, and he gave an account of the story to him. And in this account of the story, it's completely different. He does go to Charmouth, but there isn't some great big house in the countryside. There's a small smuggler's cottage with five or six, four or five um, family members that were Irish there. Um, they sit around, and the first night, nothing happens. The second night... Um, everyone goes to bed except for the one lad who's about 17 and he offers everyone a drink and they refuse and they sit and wait and then the, the lad has a few more drinks. Then he disappears off. Uh, he comes back into the room and about uh, 10 minutes later, there's this incredible knocking noise from the kitchen. They run through and they find nothing. But they, they come away and they're both completely convinced uh, that um, actually it was the 17-year-old lad playing a prank and he'd got his, um, maybe got a friend to go and knock at the back door or something like this. So 
there's a huge discrepancy between these two stories. And, and the first story, the, the, or the, the, the earlier account of, of it being in a smuggler's cottage, is, um, is it, it concurs with Frank Podmore's notes. So there's a second, uh, uh, you know, there's a second voice on that one. But somehow, in his mind, between 1893... I'm not saying he's a liar, because I think that's, that's completely... I think he was so convinced of this. I think that what happened is that, over time... Uh, it, it, there's lots of different theories as to why this might be, you know, why this might be the case that there's this, this discrepancy between these two stories. And it's possible that over time he just forgot and he misremembered. It's possible that he told Jack Payne uh, the, the wrong information early on. Um, who knows? Uh, but it's it certainly kind of makes you start to wonder about his reliability later on. And I don't want I don't want to I, I don't want to diss. Uh, Conan Doyle, because I think he's a fantastic, uh, you know, extraordinary writer. But this this does kind of make you wonder about the reliability of the witness. Well, one thing, speaking of him as a writer, and uh, one of the things that he's known for is, of course, being one of the first to share the story of the Mary Celeste. And there is an interesting connection to the Mary Celeste with the south coast of Massachusetts, of course. Do tell, do tell. The captain of the Mary Celeste... Uh, Mr. Benjamin, Captain Benjamin Briggs was actually born in Wareham, which is the town that I am from, right here on the south coast of Massachusetts. So it was one of our uh, natives, a Wareham native, uh, Captain Benjamin Briggs, who was captain of the Mary Celeste when it disappeared. Great. Well, that's rather marvelous. And you're not going to disappear, are you? I hope not. <laughs> but we'll see what happens uh, on my just way home. For, just for our, uh, our listeners, I just... Uh, uh, I just tweeted out the the link to uh, to Doyle's uh, new revelation, so you right. can kind of read up on some of the stuff we're talking about. But I, I wanted to, Matt, as we're kind of winding down, talk a little bit about uh, some of your other work um, and kind of. Uh, I, I know that the city of Portsmouth itself is kind of a, a, a not only an artistic but also a paranormal uh, spark for you, and I w- was hoping that you could get into that a little bit with us. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I, okay, I'm. <laughs> I'm kind of a Portsmouth nerd. I mean, you know, it's it's really scary. I was born in Portsmouth. I've been away. I've lived, you know, different parts of the world. I've lived in Egypt. I've lived in, um, you know, different parts of Europe. Um, and, and then I came back to Portsmouth uh, probably about 15 years ago. Um, when I was a boy, my dad was a naval officer. And um, we used to come down to Portsmouth and... Um, uh, you know, and, and I'd visit Portsmouth, and I always thought, this, this, I don't like this town. It's a rough town. We lived out in the countryside. Country was great. The town I didn't like. And then uh, a few years ago, I, I, I got up about about this time in the morning, actually, um, over here. It's probably about, it's about half, it's about five o'clock now, and I wandered down to the beach. And I suddenly just sat on the beach on a spring morning and looked across at the Isle of Wight and thought, I really like this town. Where can you sit in a kind of major city on the beach in complete peace and silence? It's just, a, it, was, it was like, a, a, and it completely changed me. I started looking into the history, and I've become completely obsessed with the history of Portsmouth. It's been an extraordinary thing. And I also uh, have, have been writing stories about Portsmouth. I do quite a bit of fiction, and uh, connected up with other writers, and produced a book called... Portsmouth Fairy Tales for Grown Ups, which is um, a great combination of, of, of wonderful stories of, uh, about Portsmouth. 
and and I mean, it just seems like it's one of those places that has a very rich paranormal history. It's almost like you know we have here what we call the Bridgewater Triangle. You have a very uh, strong draw in of a lot of different paranormal elements there. We do. I was, it's funny. I mean, it, I walk down the road and uh, it, you know, I, people just tell me go. When I told someone about uh, about Conan Doyle and the mysterious world of light, which by the way, I'd love it if you you mentioned that you tweeted. Would you would you be able to tweet my Indiegogo campaign? That would be very. Yep. I'll retweet. We did it earlier this week. I'll put it out really? there again for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so if people want to pre-order, it's there and it's at a discount on on the Indiegogo campaign. Um, yeah, I mean, people are telling me um, ghost stories all the time here. It's quite extraordinary. We've got a house um, just up the way um, at a place called Cosham, which is part of the city of Portsmouth, called Wimmering House. And it's, it's meant to be... Wimmering House is supposedly the most haunted house in, uh, in the UK. I'm sure there are several houses in the UK that claim that, uh, that, that sobriquet. But, uh, yeah, you know, we, we do have a, 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 a pretty high paranormal activity here. Also, one of the last women to be um, uh, arrested for witchcraft was arrested in Portsmouth um, as late as 1944, can you believe it? Oh, well, and you mentioned the Indiegogo campaign, and, and just let everybody know about that and, and what the uh, what you're trying to do with that campaign and how people can take part. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, the Conan Doyle and the Mysterious World of Light book is coming out on the 11th of March, but if you want to get it earlier and you want to get some kind of extra uh, extra freebies and you want to get the book at a discount, my God, I'm, I'm selling, man, I'm selling. <laughs> no, this is the selling portion. That's okay. <laughs> So, um, if you if you know if you if you really want to get hold of the book earlier, then do go to the Indiegogo ca- uh, com campaign, um, and what that will do is it will enable me to by by getting the money in earlier, I'll be able to distribute distribute it further um, around the UK. I'm talking to various bookshops at the moment. Um, I'm a small publisher, uh, so you know I don't have the kind of the muscle of kind of you know Penguin Books or Viking or whatever behind me to to get the book out there. Um, but I've had a lot of interest, so if I can get the money in to, uh, to push the book, that would be great. And that's really what the Indiegogo campaign is. But I'm actually taking my first batch of books in the coming week, and they will be being sent out in the next week. Whereas, uh, you know, it will be available on Amazon in about three to four weeks' time. So, yeah. And it says right up there on the Indiegogo page, you know, what you can get for donating. You can get copies of the book hardcover signed copies of the book and uh, and one of the more interesting options is that you can actually get a limited edition signed numbered edition of the book and you're willing to travel within 70 miles of Portsmouth to come and give a talk if anybody's yeah. interested yeah yeah absolutely like I gave a talk at the ghost club the other day and uh, that was great fun um, you know I'll, I'll travel anywhere in the world you just cover my expenses I'll do it <laughs> I, I fully appreciate that and uh, and certainly if we can find a way to get you over here we would love to uh, one of the the ha- hassles to that though is when you're trying to bring people over, you know, from from overseas to come and talk about ghosts. There's a lot of difference between the paranormal world here and the spiritualism world here and the spiritualism world there. And we only have a few minutes left, but I'll ask you this: at least in in your knowledge and your awareness, is there still a strong uh, contingent of spiritualism in the UK? Because we still do have a segment of it here in the United States. Lilydale is still huge. And uh, and where I live in Wareham, there's actually a spiritualist village called Onset that is, uh, it was huge at the time uh, during the spiritualism movement, but it still has a, a segment that exists there today. Is it still around in the UK? Oh, 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny you should ask me that, because I was going to pop over to the Spiritualist Temple um, this morning um, and just say hello and show them the book. Uh, we've got a, I've got a Spiritualist Temple. It's about, uh, it about 500 metres from, from my house. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, and the College of Psychic Studies is, uh, is, is in London, where I was doing a lot of the research, is, is the organisation that was formerly called the London Spiritualist Alliance. And, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a very active college um, uh, teaching people about spiritualism. Yeah, yeah, it's still here, absolutely. Well, here in, uh, in my town, where they still have their, their meeting area, they actually have a, a wigwam, a, a Native American-style wigwam oh. that they built in the 1800s, and that's where they have their meetings. Oh, that's great. I love it. So that's that great. sounds like a great place for you to come and talk, you know. Yeah, do that. Yeah. It doesn't hold as many as the Royal Albert Hall, but you can fit a couple <laughs> people in there. And, uh, and we'll, uh, I'll, absolutely, I'll recommend it to them. Say, I've got a great guest for you to bring over. You just got to fly him in from England, but it's well worth it. And, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. And uh, do you have anything uh, coming up, anything planned that uh, you'd like to, to let people know about? Because we do have a big audience over there in the U.K., so... Uh, the, the official launch of the book is the 11th of March, um, so that's something that we're, we're doing. That's in Portsmouth. Um, the, the main thing that's, uh, that's going on over here that I'm closely involved with is the Portsmouth Book Fest. Um, so I'm giving three talks about uh, three different aspects of Portsmouth writing because Rudyard Kipling was also, um, uh, he grew up here. Um, so you've got him, I'm doing Arthur Conan Doyle, and I'm also doing a general talk about Portsmouth, the home of great writing, because there are some further extraordinary writers came out of Portsmouth, including Charles Dickens, actually. You know, your, your Portsmouth sounds way better than the two Portsmouths that we have here in New England. <laughs> we have yeah. two of them, and they're not really all that exciting. One's in New Hampshire, one's in Rhode Island. It's like, eh, Portsmouth. But yours sounds way cooler. So Yeah, I, I think so, but then I live here, and I'm biased. Well, that's all right. I just lost all of our listenership in both Port, Portsmouth, Rhode Island. <laughs> I was going to say, there's a, there's, I know that there's a spooky South Coast contingency that, uh, that actually run a ghost tour out in Portsmouth, so... Tim didn't mean anything by it. No, it's just shtick. I love ports. I love all Portsmouths, no matter where they are. It's all just shtick for the radio. Well, Matt, we thank you, Matt Wingett, for joining us tonight. And, again, if people want to go to the Indiegogo campaign, just go to Indiegogo.com and search for Conan Doyle and the Mysterious World of Light. You'll be able to find it. We've also tweeted out links at SpookySC, at Tim Weisberg, at Spooky Balzano. Plenty of ways to find it and to catch up with it. And you can get your copy of the book and find out more about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as well. So thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. And we look forward to talking to you about more of your projects in the future. Great stuff. It's been really good fun, guys. Thank you. All right. Take care and, and get some rest now. We've kept you up all night. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, we will be back next week to talk more about the paranormal. And, uh, of course, we always have great guests. I know that, Chris, we're working on booking a bunch of different things uh, over the course of this year as we're in the 11th year of mm -hmm. Spooky South Coast and, and a lot of stuff coming out. Uh, this year, a lot of stuff on the table. I may have, by next week, I might have my ghost doc here in the studio. It's possible. That's, that sounds perfect, because I'm pretty sure, isn't uh, Seth Breedlove uh, coming on next week? I don't know. You're the guy that books the show. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, either, it's, either, uh, it's either Seth or, um, or uh, the, the, the woman who wrote the book on Psychic Children. We'll have to get that information out to people. I don't have the, uh, our, our new high-tech uh, Google Doc up and running uh, on my computer right now. Well, so. the, the best way, of course, to find out what's coming up next is to follow us on Twitter. And you can do so at SpookySC, and that's the place to find out everything about the show. Matt Costa, of course, 
runs the the account during the week, putting out all kinds of weird stories. He puts that up on our Facebook page as well, so you can check out all the weirdness. And and, and Greg, being a news guy, you know this is kind of right up your alley. It would give you a chance to get some weird stories out there. I, I see plenty of Matt's new, weird stories, and they're always you know, they, they pepper the news feed quite well. And, and they do a good job of uh, of getting a lot of interaction with people. Oh yeah. So that just goes to show you, you know, the, the regular straight news it has its place, but the weird news is where it's at. <laughs> So uh, we'll be back next week. And, again, if you are new to the show, thank you for joining up. You can check out all of our past episodes. The archives are available wherever podcasts are found, but iTunes especially and uh, SpookySouthCoast.com are the places to go to be able to get those shows and go back and dive into the archives. Somebody here in the building did that all this week, uh, Chris, and I was taking – you know, I was getting messages all week long remembering, you know, she, she's bringing up episodes that I didn't even remember. So we've done a good job over the last decade. So until, Whatever we can do to influence them. Absolutely. Until next week, we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>